Welcome to the latest edition of the First Step Cybersecurity Podcast. I'm Oliver Legg, the co-founder of Aspiron Search, and my mission with this series is to help the thousands of people applying to cybersecurity roles actually secure one. Today, we're welcoming Keith Price onto the show and discussing neurodiversity within the cybersecurity workforce. Keith is an industry veteran, having held senior security positions and CISA roles with the DOD, Deloitte and Envision Pharma Group. Keith is committed to helping mentor aspiring cybersecurity folk through various different programs and is a passionate advocate of neurodiversity and security. It's a wildly untapped talent pool and one that we talk about today. Hey, Keith, awesome to uh, welcome you onto the First Step podcast. How's it going? Hi, Oliver. Doing well up here in Cambridgeshire. Thanks for inviting me and uh, I'm really excited about uh, our discussion today around, uh, you know, finding that first role in cybersecurity. Absolutely. Yeah, we're uh, going to be talking about some exciting topics today. Um, some some that I, I, I never, never see spoken about on LinkedIn either. Um, so, uh, yeah, looking forward to, uh, to to getting into it with you. Um, I always like to kick off as uh, just a bit of an intro into you. Um, so kind of what what are you at the moment? What was your route into cybersecurity? Uh, and then we can uh, we can get into things. Sure. Well, uh, currently for the last year and a half, I've been with Envision Pharmaceutical uh, Technology Group. Uh, they're a UK-based uh, multinational. They provide technology solutions to all the big pharmaceutical companies. And um, I'm a contractor, so I'm a head of information security. They brought me in after a ransomware breach, uh, unfortunately hit them pretty hard. And I've been spending the last year and a half building their security practice from scratch, uh, thoroughly enjoying it dusting off some parts of my brain uh, in the engineering and architecture spaces that I haven't used in a while, uh, learning Azure, cloud security, and so forth. So, and then making a lot of great connections within the industry and um, doing, enjoying that all under my own uh, limited company. So, you know, a lot of fun doing that. Um, what got me into cybersecurity was the U.S. Air Force. Um, so, I, you know, I'm quite privileged in that uh, I was able to, you know, at 17, and, and 18, joined the U.S. Air Force, travel the world, working in technology, and then eventually moving into the cybersecurity space quite naturally, where I didn't, uh, you know, it, it was almost like I fell into it. Um, and a lot of people these days, obviously, have the challenges that where, you know, they're just trying to get that first foot in the door. So been doing uh, technology for 32 years now, security, 20 of those, and uh, really enjoying it and seeing you know, all the evolutions within our industry and also seeing, you know, I think some of the pragmatism that is coming out in our in cybersecurity, where we're having discussions around the people and process parts of cybersecurity a little bit more than the technology, uh, but using things like AI driven tools to help augment our teams versus be the, the primary focus. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. So no concerns of, uh, OpenAI and ChatGPT taking over your uh, your CISO role anytime. No, I love it. It's re they've helped me rewrite all my ISMS, you know, so all the policies and all the all the all the boring work. Um, I've been playing around with it. Obviously, not you know you don't want to put any uh, customer or client information in there, so you just want to keep it very broad. But I think um, over the next year we'll see it you know go from strength to strength and. Obviously, there are some areas that it's going to be very useful and helpful to us in the industry. And there's some other areas where we still need uh, human analysis. So I don't think it's going to destroy our work uh, or destroy our careers 
in any way, if anything, it's just going to make, you know, us able to automate some of those more mundane tasks. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. There's a ton, tons of industries are going to, uh, going to be able to mirror that statement as well, which is, uh, yeah, a, a good thing in our eyes. Um, but no, awesome. Um, yeah, we, uh, we, we, we speak to a lot of security leaders who have come in through the, uh, in particular the U S military. Um, so yeah, or, or it's awesome that you came in that way. So you are very heavily involved with the, the kind of entry level cybersecurity community and helping people secure those first roles. And we'll, we'll talk about some of the, the other programs that you're involved in, in, in a moment. Um, but one of the, one of the big topics that that you're passionate about and just re- really isn't talked about there's never never anything linked on on linkedin about it is around neurodiversity in cybersecurity and the the kind of untouched pools of talent um that could make excellent candidates that no one really seems to be paying any attention to. So just wanted to really kind of understand what your thoughts are around uh, uh, what, what what's the industry missing out on by not capitalizing on these talent pools? Yeah, sure. So pre-COVID, um, I don't think there was much, if any, uh, discussions around it because the neurodiverse communities, some of them were avoiding uh, our industry because of the pressures and the stresses associated with cybersecurity, the fact that, you know, almost every job was on premise, you know, in an office space or in a security operations center. Mm-hmm. And some of the environments are very hard, if not impossible for a neurodiverse, uh, professional to operate in, you know, um, so th- things like the monitors, the colors, the lighting, the temperatures, the various discussions that may be going on, it's very hard um, for these folks to filter out and it can be very uh, damaging to them. And so they, a lot of them avoided it. And um, there was very few remote positions. They existed. Um, I myself worked primarily remotely um, with Dark Matter in the Middle East and Deloitte back here in the UK. Uh, Deloitte had a very good um, agile work program that was primarily flexible. And so we were able to capitalize on some of those um, uh, talent pools that other uh, industries who had a physical presence requirement really just didn't think about. And then COVID hit and we all became, well, a lot of us in the industry became remote workers, even the security operations center people we managed to be able to allow them to work securely and safely remotely. And then, um, you know, I think it opened up um, not so much Pandora's box, but opened up our opportunity to neurodiverse talent to be able to say, knock on the door and say, Hey, um, what do you, what are you guys doing in here? I would really like to become part of this profession. And now that I, you know, it looks like I can do that from the safety and security of, my home to start with at least, or my space that I like to work from. Um, and we started seeing um, small improvements in in hiring, trying to build a more diverse team, right? We talk about women in cybersecurity where 10 years ago it was, I think around 5% or less. And now we're at 12-ish percent. So we, we're doing well, but we still have a long way to go. Um, we look at um, the POC community, same thing. Um, very small representation in the military. I looked around and it was all a bunch of Keiths in the room, you know, and I didn't realize what I was missing out on. And then when we talk about the neurodiverse talent pool, 
which can also be part of the women in the POC communities, but they have their, uh, you know, those additional challenges. So um, when I was at Little Fish, um, I actually was, had the first time reaching out to a charity that worked, um, and I wish I could remember the name of it at this time, but they worked with placing neurodiverse individuals, uh, autism, Asperger's, AD, ADHD, uh, into um, work, you know, not just security, but other professions as well. And I spoke with the gentleman there. He says, oh, my goodness, you know, your profession uh, sounds perfect for some of our folks who are very, you know, they can be task oriented or they can be very analytical. Um, they, sh you know, they have a lot of superpowers that the professional world hasn't really figured out how to tap into yet. And I think we're still very young because, you know, COVID was a couple years ago and that's really when we saw this, this massive change. So, um, you know, it's still difficult for them. Uh, my last, uh, you know, some of the cohorts in caps lock, um, you know, a lot of the students are dealing with these neurodiverse challenges and not just themselves, but also they may have responsibilities for other family members who are also having these challenges. So they require a working, flexible working condition, not just where they can work from, but when they can work and what work are they expected to do in the deliverables. So um, it's very young, early conversations, but, and like you said, you don't see much of it on LinkedIn, but I am seeing people um, on LinkedIn that are starting to have these conversations. A lot of these folks are on, um, you know, undiagnosed uh, neurodiverse and only now, even at, you know, 40, 50 years old, becoming diagnosed uh, as ADHD or on the spectrum. And so they're starting to realize, hey, uh, I've dealt with this my whole adult life and didn't realize I thought it was just something that I had to deal with. And it's, you know, there's a diagnosis behind it now and it makes sense. So, um, yeah, very early days. But I think, you know, we're in a perfect position, especially in our industry, um, where we can start looking at bringing neurodiverse talent, especially junior talent, uh, new new cybersecurity uh, professionals into our industry. Yeah, yeah, awesome. And uh, yeah, I can completely agree that the COVID and lockdown and the force into remote working is is definitely a good thing for for for, for this topic for sure. Um, so what what are what are security organisations and 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 security leaders missing out on by not paying attention to this this talent pool. Yeah, so I think really just with any building any diverse uh, talent, building any diverse team, uh, the more diversity that you have, um, and it's not about having um, you know representation for the sake of it. It's having the representation because it's valuable. Right. Because studies have proven that more diverse teams are more profitable. They're more productive. Uh, they're happier. They, you know, traditionally, um, you know, I'll give you an example. I the, the, the first time I really encountered uh, diverse teams to include neurodiverse um, team members was at my time at Dark Matter. And in our 30 to 40 person red, blue and consulting team, we had 17 different nationalities. Uh, we were about half women, half men, and we had some neurodiverse talent that um, when I would have the discussions with them about what's going on in your world, um, and I'll give you an example. We had, um, I had a neurodiverse team member 
from our blue team and we were at a dinner, we were invited to a dinner by the Emiratis, uh, one of our customers. And it just so happened the conversation about the security of the liquid borders, the coastline of the Emirates was a concern and um, started chatting and our neurodiverse member said, oh, I've been doing things with under uh, submersible drones where I'm buying them off the shelf and I'm putting GPS and I'm adding all these things, sensors and all this. And then I just program them to do a route underwater and they report back in the sonar ping. And, and it's like a toy submarine, you know, about three, four. And we're just looking at each other like, that is an amazing idea. And what that person's hobby and just the fact that they were like doing this themselves we turned that into a business prospect, you know, for a customer who was thinking, that's amazing. You know, I want 10 of those. Right. Um, and these are the things it's just the it's the unique blue sky thinking that you can get with a neurodiverse talent pool. And I'm not saying that doesn't exist elsewhere, but some of the aha moments um, are just spectacular. And uh, but at the same time, there are challenges. And you have as an employer, as a boss, as a supervisor, you have to be willing to accommodate some of the challenges that a neurodiverse um, professional candidate uh, need, you know, and each one is individual. And if we can support those needs, um, there's no reason why we can't have these folks, you know, as part of a team. It can be, you know, 10, 20 hour a week part time position because they have uh, challenges around 40 hour work weeks. But you'd be amazed at what folks even, you know, uh, working in those conditions some of the things that they produce and they think of and they introduce to the team. And sometimes it's very um, flat in their delivery. But if we, you know, it's like um, working maybe with someone with Tourette's. If you understand what their challenges are, you don't try to complete their sentences. As an example, you just listen. Um, it, it enhances your team, but it also tells that person that you care enough to know about their condition to not try to complete their sentence, to just listen and not make things, you know, more challenging for them. For sure. And I mean, you, you, you hit on a really important point that, I mean, the whole first step initiative is designed to try and tackle, which is the need for, 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 for managers and team leaders and ultimately security lead and business leaders to ultimately be committed to these types of people, but also be committed to entry-level cyber roles. Um, mm. So regardless of the, the 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 background of the individual, um, one of the biggest issues that I see with entry-level cyber jobs and the reason that people find it so hard to land their first job is le leaders aren't committed to, to, to hiring, training, and, and, and bringing unexperienced people through the ranks. Um, and, and you as a as a CISO and as a security leader in, in, in a few positions now, how, how can we change this? How can we change the trend at the hiring manager level, which will mean that businesses are more willing to invest in, in junior talent? What, 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 what do you think can be done? Yeah, that's a great question. I think there's a lot of assumptions too. Uh, I think most hiring managers, security leaders are committed Um the problem is they're restrict they're restrained. Uh, so I, I'll give you an example. SOC, you know, SOC manager, they got a responsibility to build the security operations center, have the right talent in place, and and have the talent at the various levels in their stages of career. They can bring in entry level, and they quite often do, as we find. I think forty percent of 
entry-level cyber jobs are in the SOC space. Mm. They can bring those in because they have a supporting cast. You know, they have tier one, two, three, they have threat hunters, they have, and they, and they all can contribute to the development of that entry-level SOC analyst. And it's not, um, you know, threat, it's not a threat to the business if that individual entry-level person doesn't work out, right? Um, whereas in other parts of cyber where that one hire is very critical, in fact, you may have a hiring manager is needs to hire someone in just to relieve the stress on their shoulders. And so they their intentions are, I really want to hire a, an entry-level, no-experience person in and develop them and mold them and, and help them move along the career path. But that's going to take me a long time. You know, even somebody with, um, you know, IT skills going into a tech technical cyber job, there's still a lot of development involved. And so um, I think we just have to give maybe a little bit of compassion in that these people really want to do it. Uh, but they're, you know, at the same time, it's a critical position. Uh, the budgets, especially now, you know, we look at times of financial hardship globally. Um, it's not that cyber budgets are decreased or anything like that, typically, but they're still very tightly controlled. Utilization is very tightly controlled. Um, even in the client-facing consulting world, utilization is king. So um, I think the key is is being honest with entry-level uh, cyber candidates and, and not saying to them, you know, if you get all these certifications and you get a degree and you do, you know, your top... 0.5% of hack the box and all that, you're guaranteed a job because it's not being honest with them. You know, it's a very hard field. Most people say cyber is not entry level, you know, and, and I kind of agree with that in the more technical fields, but there are areas of cyber and I'm probably going to get, you know, slayed for saying that there are non-technical cyber fields, but this is just my personal view. There's uh, employee education and awareness, cyber culture uh, positions. There's, you know, auditors who, okay, it might be good if they had an A plus cert so they knew about computers, but if they're an auditor, an ISO implementer, an auditor doesn't have to be overly technical. And there's other fields like that. HR, I've seen HR security now, HR cyber positions where you could take an HR person and train them up into security and now you're filling that position. So um, in caps lock, uh, I have students that, you know, music teacher for 30 years, um, you know, van driver, lorry driver. Um, there was a class right at the early stages, you know, a gentleman during COVID, he was a ballet dancer. So what we have to do is we have to look at what skills do they have now and how do we, you know, um, you know, really take advantage of those skills, mold them into something that may be um, exciting to them. But at the same time, we have to be honest with entry-level people. We have to say, you may have to do a job that kind of sucks for a little while. You know, you're not going to be earning 100K a year straight out the gate. You know, we see all these things. Just be honest with them and say, it's going to, it might suck a little bit for a little while, you know, for like a year or two until you've got that foot in the door. The key is getting the foot in the door. And for neuro, again, for neurodiverse people, that's even, you know, it's 10 times harder for them to get the foot in the door because a lot of businesses see them see that additional risk in hiring them versus the potential reward. If you're enjoying this podcast so far and want to know how the First Step Cybersecurity Initiative can help you, then head over to aspironsearch.com forward slash first step. Aspron Search runs a quarterly initiative sponsoring the CompTIA core certifications 
providing the training material and pairing each winner with an industry mentor to guide them through the minefield of entry-level cybersecurity jobs. If you want to be considered for the next round, then apply via that page. Uh, the being honest with with aspiring security people is important because there there are a lot of boot camps and there are a lot of companies that are kind of promising the world um, and then demanding like big money <laughs> um, for, for 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 people that are probably not in the job or the career that they want. Um, having to pay out in some cases like thousands and thousands and thousands to go through the boot camp where they've been promised something at the end, that can be difficult. Um, I think even the, so come, coming back to lockdown and COVID, I think uh, the, the UK government was doing something similar with some like in, 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 in info ads about, oh, have you thought about retraining in cyber and then promising salaries of 75,000 plus, um, which is doable, but not when you're a, 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 an entry level SOC analyst. Um, so talk, talk a bit about Capstock because Capstock's one of the what, what, one of the much better boot camps. Um, their, 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 their pricing structure, but then um, the, the the way they actually look to help people at the other end is 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 much better than a lot of the verging on scam boot camps out there. Yeah, I mean, I've been a mentor just for the last two cohorts. Um, I was approached. I wish I'd joined Capslock years ago when they first approached me. Um, to to join up, I just didn't have the bandwidth at the time. But they're an amazing uh, Jonathan, um, uh, Lorna, uh, Andrea, the leaders over at Capslock. They're just an amazing group of people. And I'll tell you what I what really actually attracts me the most to Capslock is that they're very honest about you know what their program will enable you know their uh, students to achieve. Um, and, and and the other piece is is quite often the vast majority of the students are not technical people. They're not IT people. So they take that, you know, cause it's very competitive just to get in the door at Caps Lock. Um, I'm not sure the stats, but uh, the students that I've worked with in the last two cohorts, you know, like I said, I've had um, a music teacher, I've had a PhD student who psychology uh, PhD, um, we've had uh, plenty of neurodiverse people who worked in, in a lot of industries, retail, um, they've worked in finance and all this other uh, logistics. There was a gentleman from another class, he's 40, mid 40s. Uh, he was a logistics manager for one of the big trucking firms. Um, his job went away uh, during COVID. And so he retrained under Caps Lock. Um, it's a very dynamic. There's a lot of people like myself volunteering to not just help um, students understand the material or answer a question, but also to network, right? So um, one of my recruiter friends po this week posted a job, entry-level position. In fact, we don't want anybody that knows too much. We want somebody who's like a tabula rasa, blank slate. And I said, I know a couple people. Uh, and I went into my class Slack and I said, hey guys, here's this job announcement. Reach out to John. Uh, if you're interested, this sounds like something, you know, good, you know, opportunity. Um, and that's the beauty of Caps Lock, too, is because we have so many people within the industry that are, work in different roles. And so you can say, uh, Keith, can you come talk to my cohort? We're covering GRC, <laughs> you know. <laughs> OK, yeah, it's it's the boring side. It's the most boring part of caps lock, but you know, some people like it, you know, um, or, you know, AppSec uh, guy, uh, can you come in and talk? And that's what, and it builds a community. And then 
after the class, the community is still there, right? Uh, so again, that's what attracts me is to programs that are helping people who really, in my view, need it the most. And it's hard mode for Caps Lock because the Caps Lock could go and say, we're going to take all these IT people, you know, and that would be so easy for them to train those people up. And But the success of bringing people who, you know, come from unrelated industries and turn them into successful InfoSec and cybersecurity professionals, I think that's the risk that Caps Lock has taken. They've overcome it. And now working with you folks as well in your program, I see the same type of situation, right? We get... We do it the smart way. We do certifications and the knowledge, but also working with mentors, um, recruiters in the industry who can really give that new recruit, that new candidate entry-level person, the honesty that they need to try and get that foot in the door. Yeah. And what what is your honest advice for these people? Because there are there, there, there will be people listening to this that have made hundreds of applications and they're banging their head against a brick wall because they, they've either got a, a good bit of IT experience, maybe even a security A plus, or a, maybe even a network plus. Um, sorry, a CompTIA um, A plus or a, or a network plus. Um, or they might have a security degree or a, a, like an information systems degree, and they're desperately applying, thinking they've got the skills for these entry level jobs. What, what's your advice to these people about how they can progress those applications and and and, and make progress actually getting get, get get getting that first role yeah sure so um you know when you go out you're on LinkedIn and you see a uh, you see a nice juicy role and you see oh it's got 800 applicants and as a candidate you're like oh my god I'm not even gonna try you know there's just no way and how Daunting is that, but let me tell you, those 800, they're not 800 applicants, right? And I'm sure as a recruiter, you already know this, but um, most of, you know, okay. So if there's 800, it's they've clicked on the advertisement or they've applied uh, just because they're applying for everything, but maybe less than 1% of that is actually decent candidates. And it's not that they are super skilled, but they're, you know, good for the job. Um, I've noticed that the remote work is diminishing. Um, and this is something that has happened over the last few months. Mm -hmm. um, and it's here. I've seen it in the States. Companies want people back in the office, even if it's hybrid. And hybrid is like the new remote of COVID. So hybrid is the way that companies are saying, okay, we want to remain competitive in our candidates. We want to attract the best candidates. Uh, but we also have a feeling in a culture, and I hope it's a real culture, of that we want people in the office so that way we can collaborate better face-to-face. -face. We meet with clients and so forth. There are legitimate reasons, of course, why businesses want this. Um, and if that's the case, if you bring your junior people into the office and it's just the junior people and all the senior people are working from home, that's a bunch of BS, right? I mean, that's, that's not a, you know, it's just being unfair to the new people. But what, I, what I'm saying is, um, don't limit yourself to 100% remote work only because those are few and far between now. Um, they, they they do exist, but what you have to say is, um, if you, you know, indicate remote only or preferred remote or whatever, a lot of places now are just like, it doesn't matter how good you are, they just they're not wanting to deal with that. And I'm a remote proponent, uh, you know, so I'm not saying this and that I agree with return to the office. I'm just being honest here. And so, you know, in the first interview, uh, they may ask you, do you prefer remote? Do you prefer hybrid? And if you know that they're looking for a hybrid person, don't say remote because 
they'll probably put you to, to, to the side of the candidate pool. Um, salary expectations, we should be open and honest with candidates about salary limits or ranges. But see, that's where a mentor or a good recruiter can come in and say to the candidate, you know, realistically in leads, this is the, you know, entry level SOC analyst salary. Um, don't, you know, if you're asking for 35, 40 K, that's not realistic, you know? So again, to say the candidates, you have to have realistic expectations. And then also your CV should be tailored to the job role. Um, you should look for those keywords. I, uh, you know, chat GPT, uh, is actually a good tool for aligning a CV with a job role. And it's still being honest because it's taking your CV and just really putting in some of those keywords or those key verbs, uh, power verbs, as we call them. And it's just when somebody looks, you know, if you don't go through an ATS, right? So the ATS, it's got, if, if, a, if a company is getting hundreds and hundreds, they're probably going to use an ATS. If you make it past that, then you got to think of the human eyes that are looking at it. And you want, they're going to be, 30 seconds is probably all you're going to get of human eyes on. So you have to give them that info at the top, right? So company, I think. <laughs> there's a lot of strategies, right? So what I would say is, and then networking, right? You apply for a job. And if your mentor knows, like in the case of what happened, or, you know, I reached out to my recruiter friend and said, hey, you're probably going to get some applicants from these three people that I mentor in Caps Lock. You know, I vouch for all three of them and why. Why, you know, here's why I vouch for these three, these individuals of why I think they'd be good candidates. Um, that's that's going to get you probably an interview at least. Right. Yeah. Um, and then you can, you know, maybe you have a mentor that can help you practice interviewing. You know, um, maybe if you're neurodiverse, interviewing is a huge challenge for you. Let um, let the hiring manager know, because there's laws that are there to protect you. You know, they will make accommodations if you let them know that you require accommodations. They'll do it. Um, and I, I understand a lot of neurodiverse people are probably like, Ooh, then I'm advertising that I'm neurodiverse and is that going to count against me? And you know, if it counts against you, you don't want to work at that place anyways, right? You want to work somewhere that treats neurodiverse people with respect. And that's from the very first uh, interview, the very first application. Mm. Yeah, there's a there's a lot that puts a, a huge number of people are out, really out of their comfort zone when interviewing and, and when applying um even more so if they like if they if they need a job then it can yeah. be more uncomfortable because there's the pressure there so yeah the the it's not it's not easy um but no some 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 really really good advice there keith and uh yeah looking forward to kind of having you as a part of our first mentor cohort uh which will be kicking off any uh well it will it will have been kicked off by the by the time we uh we we actually go live on this podcast outstanding uh, so how I'll, I'll put a link to your uh your linkedin and any other links in uh in in, in the show notes but how, how can people connect and and follow you yeah so i mean i'll be up front here i'm uh i'm sort of a um a sarcastic CISO. um a lot of my content is not specific to security i don't tend to discuss a lot of the, you know, high, it's for me, it's like high level, but also I'm more about labor rights. I'm more about, uh, you know, getting candidates, uh, the honesty that they need to get into the profession. I, so for me, I'm happy to connect with anybody, but uh, my, I wouldn't say my content is very vanilla. Like um, I offend people sometimes. So I, I'm going to apologize now 
if you look at my LinkedIn content and it offends you, I apologize, but I try not to be mean. Um, I, you know, I, I make every attempt to support as many people out there as possible. And I'm happy to do things to help people. Um, but I'm, I would just honestly be, say that I'm not a typical, uh, I'm sort of, I am just very sarcastic, kind of a smart ass. Um, but some people like yeah, that, yeah. you know, a little bit of sarcasm on LinkedIn. Um, I'm, a fan of LinkedIn I'm a fan of LinkedIn lunatics on Reddit, you know, a big user of, of that and looking at all the insane people who are on Reddit or, or LinkedIn through that. So happy to connect with anybody and give advice. Um, but yeah, it's, I'm a bit, you know, I'm a fan or I'm a supporter of workers. Uh, you know, I'm a supporter of strikes, you know, where people want fair pay uh, to survive, you know, to pay their bills and things. So a lot of my content is actually around that and how it involves the cybersecurity profession. For sure. Yeah, my my co-founder Joe will uh will definitely second your sarcasm. He uh, <laughs> he often knows he's like, oh Keith, Keith, Keith slating me on my post again. And I, uh, <laughs> I I tell him to start taking it so personally, but uh he'll 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 laugh when he hears this bit. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. It's never, it's never personal. I, you know, I got a lot of love for everybody. You know, um, if I wasn't in the military, I'd, I would have been a hippie traveling the world in a Volkswagen, you know, singing Kumbaya around the campfire. So, uh, I just did it with a uniform and carrying an M16 <laughs> and getting paid for it. <laughs> awesome. Well, no, fan fantastic to, uh, to have you on the podcast, Keith, and, uh, it's, uh, to progress in the, the first step. Thanks, Oliver. Yeah. And uh, the, you know, I think, you know, thank you for inviting me this topic uh, around neurodiversity and getting, you know, your foot in the door in the profession. It's mm -hmm. something, you know, that you just can't cover it all in one podcast. And so um, you've given me, you know, food for thought in, in ways that I can actually, I think, go out and deliver more of this type of useful and hopefully helpful content uh, uh, on LinkedIn um, I'll be, I'm not a Twitter, I'm not a, you know, Facebook or anything like that. LinkedIn is where I sit. And, um, you know, again, thank you for uh, hosting this and really, you know, giving my brain some additional food for thought around the subject. So appreciate it, Oliver. Absolute pleasure. No, awesome. Thanks, Keith. Well